If you have your copies of Scripture, if you'll turn to Matthew chapter 16. Our text for today is we verses 21 through 28. I think it would help us, though, uh, to expand that context a little bit to help us understand this text and to back back up and read our text from last week. So we'll pick up in verse 13 and we'll read through verse 28. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. We immediately recognize the tension with these two accounts. We have, as we noted from last week, Peter stating the confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the absolute reality of this confession as being necessarily foundational for the church that Jesus himself is building. We need to hear this. He's still building this church. It's not yet complete. He's still building Oak Valley Church. He's still building His church. And in every assembly where the gospel is being preached and taught, where this confession, this confession, that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and its implications are being held up in the front of people with deliberate boldness and love, with the understanding that there is no church without the reality of what this confession says and means. A church on a sign doesn't make it a church. This confession makes it a church. The reality of this confession makes it a church. The preaching and teaching of this confession makes it a church. The embracing of this confession makes it a church. And if that's true, then it makes one a believer. It all falls 
and rises on this confession. So we have Peter making this confession for the very first time. And after making that statement, Jesus gives him a new name. He calls him Peter. And then we almost always speak of Peter as Peter. But prior to this, he was known as Simon. But if you've noticed, even through Matthew's gospel, Matthew has referred to him as Peter all along. But he reminds us when he gets to this narrative and this account, that you no, know, his name was Simon. Jesus gives him this name at this time. And he does it using a play on words. And we talked a little bit about that last week. He said, I tell you, you are Peter, Petros, rock. And upon this rock, a different form of the same word, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We talked about it last week, but make note of that. That means that death, cannot stand against the church. The church is not in any way threatened by death in any way. It can't stand against the church. And he hasn't told them how this will be made possible yet, but he's about to. Now that's the one scene, the scene from last week. Then the second scene unfolds. Pay attention to the fact that Jesus is pointing to them what must take place, he says, in Jerusalem. And be reminded, the ministry is still in Galilee. He's still in Galilee. The disciples are still in Galilee. He's not yet made his way to Jerusalem, but he has a divine appointment in Jerusalem. And he knows that. And again, we hear what he has to say. It is in Jerusalem that he must suffer many things from the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. And notice he catches all of them who will be in the Sanhedrin. And the disciples don't understand this yet, but there is going to be a trial of sorts. And this group of people will, if you, if you want to gather, they will try him in the way that they try people, and they will find him guilty and state that he is guilty, and then he's going to be handed over to the Romans. But notice that it is initiated here, and he tells them this, and then he says that he will be killed and on the third day be raised. Now granted, Jesus has mentioned a, a few things alluding to this along the way, in fact, in chapter 9 and verse 15, and we read it and dealt with it, and Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, uh, and they will eat. And it's kind of masked in that kind of language. And now Jesus masks this no longer. Peter has made this confession at this time by God's providence, and now things are going to be crystal clear and they're going to be made crystal clear and he makes it clear what the Messiah necessarily had to do I was reminded this week as I was looking through this text he's headed toward Jerusalem there is in one sense a, 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 a level of determinism that is directing him there. He has a divine appointment. It cannot be avoided. He's not going to let it be avoided, but it has been established in eternity past that he will be in Jerusalem 
for this particular event. In fact, all of creation, all of God's redemptive plan settled on that day, that moment in that city. And there are all kinds of reasons that we could talk about. But just for today, just understand that it's going to take place in Jerusalem. And while there is that determinism there, and there is this sense of determination on his part that he's going to get there. We'll see this in just a moment with his response to Peter. There is this determination, but there is something that, that overrides all of this. There's something greater that's more important here, and it becomes important as he begins to talk about discipleship, and that is there is a submission here that outweighs all of the determination, a submission here to something that had been established by the Godhead before there was ever a creation, before there was ever a people. There was a submission to this work, and this submission is significant. I want us to look at three things at first. First, I want us to see the sovereign control over the revelation of truth. Sovereign control over the revelation of truth because we're looking, we won't understand this text if we have not dealt with the text that we dealt with last week. We dealt with it, so we have to drop back there to understand what's going on. Jesus himself told Simon Peter that flesh and blood did not, did not, could not reveal the truth of what he confessed. This wasn't an idea that he reasoned to Though it is reasonable. As we stated last week, it was not apart from the testimony that Simon Peter had already experienced, the things that he had already seen, the things that he had witnessed, the things that he had heard. He had heard of this divine work. He had witnessed it. He saw it. But I want you to understand that there was a divine work in him that awakened him at that moment at Caesarea Philippi that it removed in his mind and in his heart, it removed all doubt as to who Jesus was and he confessed it. It was just like he blurted it out. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. We need to understand that if this had not happened, Peter never would have confessed this truth. He was not going to get there on his own. You and I can't get there on our own. Our community cannot get there on their own. That's why we prayed just a moment ago, God, awaken them. Do something in them to cause them to turn away. Do something in their lives that would cause them to become desperate enough. Do something in our families' lives. Do something in our sons' and daughters' lives. Do something in our brothers' and sisters' lives that will cause them to realize how desperate things are. Why? Because they, the only way that they're going to come, the only way that they're going to know is for God to awaken them. There is this divine and sovereign control over the revelation of truth. We saw that in other places. We won't go back and look at them. But Peter would never have confessed this. Second, we see the sovereign control over the necessary suffering of Christ. Verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples, listen, that he must go to Jerusalem 
and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This was a must. It was necessary. Notice here that the Son of God pronounces what had been planned in heaven in eternity. I mentioned before, before there was ever a world, before there was ever a creation as we know it, before there was ever a man. And I believe it would be reasonable to say, and we have no way of stating this one way or the other, but even before the revolt in heaven, because it took place before anything was ever made. It has been always held in the mind of God and for all eternity that this work of redemption that would reflect His glory greater than anything else that He's ever done. We, we hear that over and over again through Scripture. Why mention this? Because just as Christ has said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, so was it necessary that he must be humiliated, suffered, be killed, and be raised on the third day. It's a sovereign work. Get that. Please get that. And third, we see that there's sovereign control over the wickedness of the world. Even the religious leaders of Jesus' own people. And yes, even the lack of understanding on Peter's part. Have you ever really considered how Peter in one moment can be so intimately connected with the Spirit of God, abounding in him, revealing such great and necessary truth for his own life and for ours and for everyone else, a confession that holds, that must be had and embraced and known by every person that will ever enter into the kingdom of heaven. Apart from that confession, they will not get there. Apart from that confession, we have nothing to preach and teach. But, in fact, Peter, in that one moment, he's that close. The Spirit of God is all over him and in him. And in the next moment, we hear, he rebukes Jesus for what he was stating must happen for redemption to take place. How's that possible? And I know we're often quick to judge Peter. I have. You have. It's a good story to tell. He does this one minute, he does that the next. But how is all that possible? Oh, it's real. He wasn't clear on who the Messiah was. He confessed the Lord Jesus. God awakened him to this confession. But he did not know what we know. He had not seen what we have witnessed and testimony of sin. He saw a lot. But he had not seen everything. It isn't clear that even here we're being reminded that it's only by the grace of God that we know what we know. Peter wasn't infallible. He wasn't an infallible confessor and leader. If you want any place to talk with a Catholic friend about the infallibility of the Pope and it coming from Peter, you can point back to here and then follow the rest of Peter's life. And that's not to make Peter look bad. That's just to say... 
Peter wasn't infallible. So who coming from Peter could be infallible? How could you count and trust on them in the way that Catholicism counts on and trust in some kind of papal authority? It makes no sense when you look at this thing. In one minute, the Spirit of God is on him and he confesses what no other man had confessed at that point. And then in the next moment, he's rebuking Jesus for the very work that the Messiah has to do. He wasn't an infallible confessor and leader. In one instance, Jesus is naming him rock and then using that to help illustrate the significance of this confession. And in the next instance, Peter is a stumbling block. That's what that word hindrance there means that you see there in verse 23. One minute he's a rock, the next minute he's a stumbling block. What does that say? What does that say? In one instance, the Holy Spirit is revealing this deep truth in his heart and mind of this one who he really wants to follow Christ. In the next moment, he's being targeted by Satan to do his bidding and bringing to question the necessary work of Christ. Does that happen in our lives? One minute we're enjoying glimpses of heaven and the next minute we are, have acts and feelings and thoughts that are hellish and ungodly? Sure. We're not here justifying Peter being a stumbling block. It is just a reminder to us and for us that the work of God is not yet complete in Peter, and it's not yet complete in those of us who confess at times, and then our life looks different than our confession. We confess, and yet at the same time, in just a moment, we are struggling with the very thing that we confessed. Think about it for a moment. If Jesus is any person other than who He is, with any other work before Him, then everything that Peter said would have been appropriate and commendable. Do you ever think about that? Peter in his flesh, with his limited understanding, was seeking to preserve, to protect the one he loved. He was seeking to ensure that Jesus' work, as he understood that it would be, would not be hindered. What did he know about Jesus? Well, Jesus was establishing a kingdom. He was establishing a rule. He believed that. Peter believed that. He had a church to build. He just heard Jesus say, I'm building my church. He had people to heal. He had a message to preach. But the thing that confounded Peter confounds the lost world today. We have read about it today. We have sung about it today. And you know what it is? It's the atoning work of of Christ. Do you know the thing that separates believers from unbelievers? It's not whether they say, I believe in Jesus. It is whether they rest and hold on to and embrace and trust their souls to the atoning work of Christ. And Peter could not get his mind around that at that moment. The confounding work of the atonement. 
The very work that is necessary for redemption, for forgiveness, for reconciliation, for adoption, for eternal glory. What we see here is Peter being sanctified. That is, in his weakness, he is being made strong. As Paul was writing to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. Turn there for just a minute. Paul wasn't dealing with sin here, but he was keenly aware of it. Paul writes, I must go on boasting. Though there's nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who for 14 years ago was called up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was, and he's speaking about himself kind of in the third person too, by the way. Okay. He said, he said whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that, that cannot be told, which man may not utter. And on behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not... <clears throat> I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. And three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ, and I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, I am strong. Hold on to that verse. Has bearing here. What we see here is God doing His work and Peter completing it as Paul was writing to the church at Philippi. And I'm sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. I'm pointing us to the fact that in this confession, if we are followers of Christ, there will be ups and downs there will be things that we will come to know and things that we will understand and even some of the things that we will understand that we will struggle with at times in carrying out in our lives. But we continue to follow and you'll see this in just a moment. All of this was and remains important for what Jesus was about to say next. Now keep in mind, Peter's confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He is the sent one of God. He's the second person of the triune Godhead. And he's building a church, which as we said last week, are people who are bound and loosed in heaven. And their binding and loosing in heaven determines their binding and loosing on earth. And it relates to and is embedded in this bedrock confession of those who profess Christ. So what Jesus is about to do now is to disclose the implications of this profound confession. That's the reason that this is taking place. 
The reason that this that Jesus is even having to deal with Peter doesn't understand. He doesn't understand the implications of what he confessed, but he's about to, and he will come to understand that even more over the course of the next months and will completely understand it as it pertains to what Jesus was saying at Pentecost. So here's what we do. First, let's look and see what it is that Jesus says. And then Jesus told His disciples... If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done self-denial is foundational to following Christ so here's what's happened Peter has confessed then he doesn't understand and he rebukes Jesus now Jesus comes back now and says let's make it clear as to what it means to follow me let's make clear what this confession means once it is confessed, if it is a genuine confession. So for us, kind of groundwork for us right now, if we have confessed, we will understand if this confession is genuine, if what we are about to see in the text is true of us and is being made true of us. It also will help us understand that if we have not yet confessed, and we have some here who have not yet publicly confessed, that being the case, listen closely, listen well, that when the time comes that you confess, if by God's grace you do, understand what this confession means as it pertains to you. What it means to follow Christ. Here's what Jesus said. If anyone would follow me, that's what that, he says, if anyone would come after me, that same word translated as follow. So he says, if anyone would follow me, if anyone would follow me, let him or her deny himself or herself. Now we may wonder to what degree or just what Jesus means when he says, deny yourself. What does self-denial mean? Well, the text defines what he means. He says in the very next statement, deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So, denying oneself to the point of taking up a cross. Okay? In other words, there's no greater self-denial than taking up the cross once we understand what that means. Jesus has pointed back. He hasn't said yet that He will die on the cross, though we know that's what He is pointing to. But He said what of Himself? He said, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And then He said, on the third day, be raised. So Jesus said to deny oneself 
is to experience humiliation, be willing to experience humiliation, suffering, pain, and even death. And he said, if anyone was to come after me, in other words, just this is my humiliation, Jesus says. This is my submission. This is, this is what the cross is for me. The same is true for you. So he's using this picture of what is going to happen to him as a, as a, as a, as a picture of what it means to follow Christ. He said, if anyone is to come after me or follow me, he or she must follow me down the same path. Not for the same reasons, mind you. He is going there to purchase our atonement. He is going there to purchase the redemption of those who will believe. But His path of the cross in submission and in self-denial is the same for those who follow Him. So when we say we are followers of Christ, and I often use that term, Christian is confused. It shouldn't be, but it is a term that is confused. But I often say that I'm a follower of Christ. I'm reminded again today, and I have been as I've looked at this text, am I really a follower of Christ? Have I denied myself to the point that I would take up the cross? And that I have taken up the cross to the level of self-denial. They knew exactly what this meant. He used the picture of the cross to communicate the idea of self-denial because it was crystal clear to them. When a person was sentenced to death, everything about that person's life was relinquished. In a sense, every ability to claim any independence or to act on that independence was completely removed. It was taken away. In Jesus' day, the common mode of execution was to be hung on a cross. That's what the Romans did. And in most instances, the condemned were made to carry uh, that cross member, the member of the cross, on one's back to the place of execution. And we know this was true for Jesus, and we know He couldn't make it all the way there, and He had assistance. The cross was a symbol of humiliation, suffering, pain, and death. And Jesus necessarily endured it for our redemption. But He is saying followers of Christ necessarily take up that cross. Not for atonement. Not for atonement. But out of submission to the self that has been made alive by the power of God. So when we are awakened as Peter was awakened, Jesus had to help Peter understand, Peter, this is what this means for you. And Peter didn't get it yet. He didn't get it yet. But he didn't see what he was about to see in the suffering of Christ and in the resurrection of Christ. That's the reason we as believers today, we have to get it. Because that resurrection has already taken place and the Spirit of God awakens us to the reality of who Jesus is and what it means to follow Him. And what it means to follow Him is to deny ourself. Why? To what degree? Well, let's look at that. Jesus gives some reasons why. Notice what He says in the text next. For whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
Okay? Lose gain to gain lose. The reason why a follower of Christ is to live a life of self-denial is because in our sin, we are prone. Now I want you to catch this, and this is true of every one of us. We are prone to whatever is easy, whatever is comfortable, whatever satisfies that ease and comfort. We are prone to want to be accepted. We are prone to want to be built up. We want to be well thought of. We want to be liked. To what extent? In most cases, to almost any extent. And most especially to the extent of saving our own lives and protecting our comfort and protecting our ease and protecting our stuff and protecting our goals and protecting the things that we have established that have grown out of this world that we are trying to achieve. That is our lives of comfort and ease. But we need to hear this both as a warning and as an observation. The warning is Jesus says that life lived seeking to satisfy this self will ultimately do what? Will be lost. What does he say? He said for whoever would save his life. Now he's not talking about saving his life eternally. No, whoever would save his life. In other words, what? Whoever would seek to make this life and this world all that they know and they pour their whole life into this world and what they can have here and what they can know here and what they can experience here and what they can enjoy here, they will lose their life for eternity. That's an observation on his part and it is also, as we see it, he is warning us of this. So a life lived for the things of this world will be lost for eternity. But a life lived denying this self, not just denying the self to deny self, but to deny oneself for the sake of the gospel, to deny oneself for Him, to deny oneself for His glory, to deny oneself for His church, to deny oneself for His mission. That person's life. And self-denial and absolute loss and in death to those desires and those things, that person's life is saved for eternity. Then notice what Jesus does next. He asks a rhetorical question. I want you to look at that. And, And you know, most of the time when a rhetorical question is asked, It's left for the person to understand what the answer is and to grapple with it. What is the question he asked? And he puts this in economic terms, okay? So we're not shepherds. Most of us aren't farmers. Most of us aren't fishermen. But all of us have a bank account. We all work. Some of us have retirement plans and programs. Some are investing in things for the future. He puts it in terms we can understand. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Pretty clear terms, isn't it? Hear this again. For what will it profit a man 
if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Well, what's the obvious answer? If we believe that there's an eternity, and Jesus is getting ready to point us to that, the, the answer is obvious. There would be no profit. In fact, it would be the worst investment that you ever made. It would be like buying the stock that is plummeting and knowing that it will never come back up again and investing everything in that stock. That's exactly what he is saying. Jesus is putting it in terms we can understand. It would prove to be no worthwhile investment at all. An investment in trying to avoid humiliation, avoid suffering, avoiding pain, and avoiding even death. And listen, you know the reason why he places that in there? Is what he has already promised that he is building his church and that death will not prevail against it. So if death will not prevail against his church and we are in his church why would we even be concerned about trying to avoid death on this side of things? It doesn't make any sense. Why? Because he has already promised that death will not prevail against his church, nor those who are in this church. Doing all of this, if you tried to avoid all of that for the sake of comfort and wealth and acceptance, or just satisfying our creature comforts in this life and ultimately satisfy all the desires of a self apart from Christ and wind up losing everything? The answer is obvious. But notice the second question gets even more pointed. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? doesn't take a lot of commentary there, does it? In other words, can you buy your soul in this life? And if so, what does it take? That's the question. Can you buy your soul in this life? We already know we can give our lives to all the other things we can forget about the mission of the church. And I'm, not, I'm, I'm talking about me. I can get caught up and distracted. You can get caught up and distracted. When we say that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then He in turn says, Yes! And on this, I build my church. I am building my church. And, and death can't stand against it. And then we say, well, we want to follow you. Jesus now was saying, okay, okay. Now let me tell you what that means. Let me tell you what following really means. It doesn't mean making the confession verbally, although it begins there. It means that you die to self, self-denial. And what does that mean? It means that we die to self in such a way that we are dying to everything that would bring us comfort and satisfaction and peace and all the things that the world would seek to try to give us. And we are saying, that's not 
what I want. I want Jesus, and if that is suffering as he suffered, I suffer. That is pain, I take pain, even in death, because death cannot stand against the church. So can I buy my soul in this life? The obvious answer is no. How do we know that? Let me ask you this question. Can we buy peace in this life? Can we buy happiness in this life? Can we buy health in this life? I know that's not true. Because Janice and I have paid doctor bill after doctor bill after doctor bill for her health and my health. And we both still don't have health. You can't buy it. You can't buy it. Every one of us in some way has tried to, and we know many who have gone to the extreme measures to do so. And you know what? 100% have failed. So if we can't buy those things, is there any thought of us buying our soul for eternity? And the answer is, is no. And that was Jesus' point. Give your life to this life only and you lose your life for eternity and you can't buy your soul's way into heaven. Again, Jesus is speaking of all who would profess. He wants everyone to be certain of what it means to follow Christ. Peter's confession was and remains incredibly important because it points to the supreme value and treasure of the exalted Christ. Peter had not yet understood that fully. He will. I hope we do. It is Christ and Christ alone who can purchase our soul for eternity. That is the reason why he said, I must go to Jerusalem. I must face much at the hands of the scribes and the Pharisees. I must suffer. I must bear this pain. I must go to this cross. I must die. And I must be raised on the third day. Why? It's the only thing that will purchase your soul and provide heaven. It's the only thing that will purchase eternity with Him. It is the only thing that will place us in our relationship with God that enables us to be with Him for eternity. Then Jesus makes a final point, and we don't want to miss this. Here's the other reason why. Please catch this. For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Now, He qualifies that. He qualifies that. He's coming again to judge. We sang of that. Did you, didn't take your worship guides and go back and look where we sang of His judgment. He's coming as judge. And He will repay each person according to what he or she has done. 
And that act disqualified in this text. The judgment will be based upon whether you were a confessor only or if you are a genuine follower. Jesus is crystal clear about what it means to follow Him. Crystal clear. I'm convicted. He isn't lessening commitment in an attempt to build His church. He isn't lessening that commitment. No, He's laying out the demands of following Him. What does it look like? It means something. It really does mean something when we say, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It means something. He's laying out those demands of following Him. And at the same time, you know what He's doing? He is lovingly pleading, calling for us to follow Him. Why? My goodness. The gain in following Him is life. That's the gain. Him. Life. Him. And the alternative, to not follow Him is to sign up for permanent and eternal destruction. That's how serious it is. I'll share a closing word from Augustine. I want you to listen to him. Make sense. Catch this. If you love your soul, there is a danger of it being destroyed. So if I, if I love my soul, there's a danger of it being destroyed. Why? Because I am prone in my sin to try to feed my soul with this world and this life. That's what Augustine was saying. Therefore, you may not love it since you do not want to be destroyed. So don't love it in that way. He said, but in wanting it to be destroyed, you love it. It sounds like some philosophical jargon, but it's not. He was restating what Jesus said. Let's hear it from Jesus again. For whoever would save his life, because he thinks that much of it, so he tries to preserve everything, he wants all of his comfort now, he's wanting everything that he can get now, and Jesus said that he had submitted to pain, suffering, hardship, death, and the resurrection would come. But whoever loses his life, in other words, denies self now, loses his life, hates that life now, that part of the self hates that part. For my sake will find it. It. Fulfillment in Christ. It. Peace in Christ, it. Forgiveness in Christ, it. 
the love of Christ, it, life, it, eternal life, it. I'm not worked up in the flesh over this, but I want to tell you the truth of this text haunts me. Haunts me. Because there is no clearer picture of what it means to follow Christ. And I want to follow Him. I want you to follow Him. If you are already professing, I want you to follow Him. If you've not yet confessed Him, know what it means to follow Him. And, and I just plead with you, follow Him and let's follow Him together. And let's teach others what it means to follow Him. Why? Because He's coming again with the angels in the glory of His Father. And He will judge accordingly. And then I ask this, are you a follower of Christ? Let's pray. Father, you are so abundantly gracious and Christ was so abundantly gracious to make clear to Peter and the disciples what following him meant. We know, Father, it wasn't about what they were doing. But if that confession is real in us and we long for it to be, then continue to work in us as you did Peter to bring about the completion of that work so that every day becomes this day that we have this stronger urge within us to go after you and help us to see, Father, that anything less than that some way is a reflection of turning away your grace because there is no one more wonderful than you. There's no one greater than you. There's no greater gain than to be with you. And help us to see that. Help us to be desperate for that. And we cry out again, Father, for our community. In, in their blindness would you cause them to see just how futile all this stuff is. Just how meaningless all of it is. And help us as we just grab a hold of you. You're holding on to us. But help us, Father, grab a hold of you and cling to you with such a desperate yearning to know you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.